VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. It's Monday, January 15th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Indre, would you vote for a scientist for Congress? Absolutely. Well, I guess it depends on who. (laughs) So that covers my reaction to the developments of 2017 now into 2018. A number of scientists have declared and are actively running for federal positions and state positions on in many states across the, the country. And initially, I had this rush of excitement, like, yes, scientists will be in office. Science is going to maintain like a level of interest inside these halls that have largely been shut off to scientists in the past. And then I was like, wait, why are they running? Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. what are they standing for? Uh, you know, yeah. Are, yeah. Are they, you know, it, it is, it, it does take a certain amount of skill to be a politician. And do they have those skills? And also, what are their views? Because, of course, just because we assume they are going to make rational decisions, that doesn't mean that they don't have their own biases. Yeah. And I think that's why I want to use some of 2018 to actually explore why scientists are writing for office, and if scientists inhabiting those halls will actually lead to any changes for science itself. I'm going to start by interviewing uh, this week's guest, Jess Phoenix. She's a volcanologist, coolest name for a scientist type ever. Uh, She's a geologist that studies volcanoes. Oh, not Vulcans. Not Vulcans, no. Not Spock, but more like, you know, Mount Hood and all of those places. Uh Uh, she's running um, as a Democrat in the California 25 district, which is run by a Republican Steve Knight. And Democrats have identified this as one of the key districts that they want to flip in 2018 midterm elections. Jess was motivated by how science was treated in, in terms of some repeals of policies in the first year of President Trump's era. And she was motivated particularly about how public land protections were being rolled back. And she saw that as just an existential threat against values that she felt like she held and many constituents held. Now, she has much more deep beliefs, and she's running on a larger platform than just, I'm a scientist, I'm running on a pro-science agenda, uh, everything from immigration to LGBT rights on down the line. But what I think is interesting is she's really emphasizing this uh, methodical, thoughtful, scientist-driven thought process as one of the values that she will bring to Congress that is going to be more evidence-based, much more uh, dispassionate and rational 
about the information in front of them rather than a partisan run situation that we're so used to over the past years, at least here in the US. And I thought that was compelling, but I'll be interested to see what the listeners think for themselves. So that'll be our interview for this week. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Jess Phoenix. Jess Phoenix, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you for having me, Kishore. It's great to be here. So you're a volcanologist, a geologist by training, but running for Congress, which actually sounds like the harder job of the two. So why run for office and, and why now? Well, I think now uh, is a really unique time in our history uh, as a country. And, you know, we're at sort of a cultural inflection point where we have an assault on facts and the truth like we've never seen before. We have people who are outright denying basic science and the value of science in society. Um, we have funding for scientific research being um, cut and diminished. And it's really, um, it's it's problematic because we're facing challenges right now that we've never seen. Uh, the rise of automation, uh, we see, you know, unions being pushed to the side, we see um, climate change becoming a really big national security threat. And, you know, we we basically are at a, at a juncture where we need everybody, all hands on deck, to be engaged in politics. No longer can people afford to say, oh, I'm not interested in politics. And that includes scientists. So here I am, I want to push back against this assault on facts. And, uh, you know, I've got a climate change denier who's my representative, and that's who I'm challenging in this race for Congress. And we need people who accept facts and uh, and believe in them in office. There has been this challenge to belief in scientific facts that has been long running in this country. This isn't something that's happened in just the last 12 months. But all of a sudden, we've seen a wave of scientists participate in politics, both by running and uh, protesting and behind the scenes and policy in ways that we haven't seen before. Do you see sort of a landscape shift that's happening within science right now around politics? Yes, I, I really do. And I think it's because, you know, the scientific community for a long time had really kind of kept our opinions to ourselves politically even though science is inherently a political thing, uh, because governments have to decide that they want to prioritize science and prioritize research and invest in R&D and in understanding how the world works. And so right now, scientists are going, okay, so our funding, which we were worried about jeopardizing, you know, uh, before by speaking up politically, if we don't speak up, we're going to lose our funding. So I think that, you know, scientists now understand that, you know, in, in order to even have our jobs be available to solve these problems, you know, that we're, that we're facing, we need scientists speaking up, speaking out, donating, running, you know, we need scientists involved in every facet of society. You know, when I got involved in the March for Science early on, a number of scientists that I've worked with for a long time, that I've respected for a long time, you know, really mentioned to me that this is a dangerous area for science to go into in some ways because it erodes a, a perception of science being dispassionate and, and nonpartisan for some, that some are going to see this move of scientists running for office as science becoming part of a platform of, of one party or another. What's, what's your response to those kinds of cautionary notes? 
Well, I think the first thing to point out is there's two things. Uh, but the first thing to point out is that uh, science itself, like I said, has been political because, it, you know, if government prioritizes it, it's part of what the government does, which means that it is influenced by politics and the will of different administrations. That has just been the way it has been since we've had government uh, in, in our country. And then but what the what isn't political, what isn't partisan is the scientific method. And that's what scientists do. We employ the scientific method and that doesn't change. It is 100 percent nonpartisan because it listens to the facts. It looks at the facts and it uses those facts to try to test hypotheses in order to eliminate uncertainties and gain more certainty. So that's all it really is. It's just a process and a process itself can't be you know, beholden to any one political party. A process is neutral. It's how you use it. So as long as we have scientists who are willing to say, look, I am looking at the facts. I am going through an objective process. And what this shows me is how we need to take action with our policy. Then we're on the right track uh, because we want science informing our policies. And then the second part of that is that, you know, it's unfortunate that it seems like right now that one party is skewed so far into rejecting science because science really doesn't belong to a particular party. It never has. It never should. It's just something that people agree is essential for us to you know, basically survive on the planet with a growing population. We need to understand the world around us and we need technological advances and insights. So I think you know, that's a real sign that the party is sick not that science is sick. And uh, it's something that needs to be addressed at the party level because science will keep on being objective. Uh, it's just, you know, we need to make sure that it is respected and used to inform our decisions. Now, a wide majority of our elected officials on the federal level are come from legal or business backgrounds. And as a scientist entering that field, that's going to be a little bit of a, of a different arena for you. Uh, how do you prepare to run when so many of your uh, colleagues um, have a, a different expertise that they're bringing to the campaign? Well, fortunately for me, um, I actually come from a background of communicating science. Uh, I've done shows for Discovery Channel and for the Science Channel. And uh, and I used to be a teacher. I used to teach at Cal State Los Angeles. Um, I taught at the university level. And my nonprofit that I founded and run, Blueprint Earth, uh, does outreach to elementary school classrooms, as well as working with college and university students. So for me, being able to take in complex concepts and then explain them in a clear way that makes sense to people is kind of my stock and trade. And then also what science training does for you is it allows you to immerse yourself in all sorts of different topics and really break them apart and analyze them for what they truly are. So it's, it's a great skill set to have um, when you're going into something like Congress, where you have to deal with a wide variety of problems. I mean, one day you could be working on, you know, uh, safety in, in the Food and Drug Administration side of things, you know, and legislation that, that impacts food safety. And then the next day you might be working on gun violence, hopefully. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, we our legislators need to be good at rolling their sleeves up, understanding the heart of different issues and, and being flexible and, and adaptable. And I think that's what scientists bring to the table. A number of scientists are running for office nationwide. Uh, a few have run already, some successfully, some not. Is there infrastructure in place to support scientists taking on a campaign like uh, like you're doing? And did you receive any support from organizations really trying to prepare scientists for this endeavor? Well, you know, I wish I could say yes, but uh, the answer is no. And uh, it's because 
usually when people run for office, they have they, they plan it a couple of years in advance and they've cultivated a network of wealthy donors. And, you know, you see that in pretty much every congressional race around the country is you get some people who are running who have the backing of their wealthy donor friends or their networks or professional networks. And that is why lawyers and business people are so um, prepared to handle our money dominated political system. Scientists aren't. I mean, with the with a few exceptions for scientists who maybe have patents to different things and, and therefore have some wealth from that. Most of us, I mean, myself included, uh, have student loan debt uh, and are making, you know, not not a crazy amount of money. So when we go into this, we're asking networks that have never been activated before to engage politically. And it is it's an uphill battle. And I did actually get some early help in my campaign from 314 Action, which is a new group that has um, their efforts are centered around trying to encourage scientists to run for office uh, because there is no existing infrastructure. And I mean, there's one scientist in Congress right now. That's Bill Foster in Illinois, and he's a physicist. And, and that's all we have. So we're really starting something new. And because I am taking a fully grassroots approach uh, to my campaign, I'm relying on people who don't usually donate politically. Um, I'm, I'm relying on getting everyday people excited and, uh, and really fired up about the possibilities. And just so our listeners have an idea, how much money does it take to actually run a successful campaign for congressional office? Way too much is the short answer. Uh, it's it's actually borderline obscene how much money uh, these seats are costing. And I'd say this race that I'm in, um, all told, it'll probably be between eight to nine million on both sides. Um, you know, I'm trying to raise for the primary. I'm looking at raising about seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred thousand dollars. And then um, for the general election, we would probably need to get somewhere between three to four million. And that is if that number blows your mind, don't worry, it blows mine, too. <laughs> um, it's so much money. And I think about all the things we could do with that money if we weren't having to spend it just to run for office. And uh, so that's why my campaign, we, we're we taking a very um, grassroots, bare bones approach. All of our focus is on getting the word out to people in the community through door knocking efforts. And But, you know, you have to pay people to go in Canvas. And, uh, you know, it's uh, we also need to put flyers in the mail. So people who we may not connect with while knocking on doors, they'll still know about the campaign. Uh, and then, of course, getting the word out on social media is important these days. But you know, until we do campaign finance reform and, uh, you know, we overturn Citizens United and we have publicly funded elections, this is the world we live in. <laughs> I, I want to get into your platform a little bit, but but first, let's talk about the district you're actually running in, which is the California 25, which is in Southern California. It's sort of the the exurbs um, outside of L.A. and and then into some of the mountainous region uh, north of L.A. Uh, tell us a little bit about the district and, and the demographics that, that make up that district. It's an amazing place. It is definitely not what people think of when they think of L.A. Uh, there are rolling hills. And, and I mean, I could see snow on the mountain peaks this morning when I got up. Uh, it is beautiful. Uh, and it's also an area where our communities range from like townhome type neighborhoods uh, and apartment complexes all the way to people who have a few acres of land. Uh, and it's so it's really pretty diverse. In fact, um, we actually have a very large uh, Latino community. Uh, we've got a lot of African-American folks in our district, and we have a lot of from the Asian and Pacific Islander community as well, uh, in addition, of course, to, to white folks. So it is very diverse. And now for the first time ever, we have more Democrats registered than Republicans to vote here. So it is a changing community and it's growing and expanding. And I'm 
I'm really excited to be here because the possibilities are pretty much endless for where we could go. It's it's just a really happening place. And we've got the proximity to LA without being in downtown LA. So it's you got a little bit more space. <laughs> now, I want to talk about some of the items, that, some of the issues that you're really standing for, one of which is disaster preparedness, which is in your DNA, both as a scientist and your background. But it's also an issue that's that's recently touched the the district that you're representing with some of the wildfires. Can you talk about disaster preparedness and and what your stance is on that issue? Sure. Um, I'm happy to because uh, I actually grew up with, as you said, my background was in, uh, well, having FBI parents. And they, my parents both served in the FBI for over 20 years. And my mom was an expert in uh, terrorism. And my dad was an expert in uh, white collar crime and cyber crime. So I heard preparedness from the time I was a young kid, uh, particularly because of some of the, you know, we had the World Trade Center bombing in the 90s. And then, of course, we had 9-11. And, and there were so many other smaller terror incidents that my mom had, you know, something to do with the response to those things and uh, or that she was asked to comment on because that was her expertise. Uh, so preparedness for me is it's it's sort of something that it touches everybody's life, even if you don't realize it or not, because it is it, it involves the natural world. That's my expertise is natural hazards. It involves man-made disasters like you see with terror incidents and then the cyber world too. Uh, cyber attacks and cyber warfare are on the rise. So we need to have people in office who understand that these threats come from all different angles and that an educated public is one of the biggest ways that we can prepare for bad things, whether it's a wildfire or an earthquake or a bomb, you know, I mean, all of these things, if we have good, strong infrastructure, if we have systems in place to respond to these events, and if we have people who know what to do in the event of a disaster, we're going to be a lot better off. And these things are only going to, we're going to see more and more disasters and incidents like that with climate change. So it really ties into the work I've been doing in terms of environmental science. I mean, preparedness is in one area is going to help us in other areas too. Talking about climate change, climate change has unfortunately become a very difficult policy to to pursue here in the, in the states because of how uh, certain members of the Republican caucus seem to block any potential legislation uh, leading to U.S. being more involved in climate policy, both locally and globally. So how do you, as uh, running as a Democrat, feel like you can make effective changes around climate change, both as a scientist and as somebody that just sees the issue of climate change affecting your local district? I think the important thing is for people to prioritize it when they go to the ballot box. And so that means that electing leaders like me who understand climate change and uh, you don't always have to be a scientist. I mean, it certainly helps if you are. But if you are somebody who listens to scientists, values the expertise and the consensus of the scientific community, then, you know, that's how we prioritize this is basically by using, uh, you know, the power of the ballot and making sure that when when you go to different events, uh, you know, if it's a city hall meeting or an activist group meeting, that you're mentioning climate change as a concern. And this is something we're very good about in California in terms of being environmentally conscious. Uh, it's a state more than a lot of other states where the environment is is front and center in what we do and how we live. And I know in other places that's not always the case. But I mean, I I think that. When you actually talk to people, when you get the word out and you say, 
you know, do you want clean air? Do you want clean water? Do you want clean soil? You're hearkening back to what used to be bipartisan. I mean, we had Nixon found the EPA and Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, you know, a big environmentalist and these are Republicans. So we really need to look and see why it's become so polarized as an issue, the environment and climate change. And it's really just all about following the money. And again, if we can get big money, dark money out of politics, then we actually could see more clearly the lay of the land. And I bet a lot of people would realize that we need our planet to be a healthy one if we want to live our fullest lives. So even though we have accomplished not very much when it comes to climate policy here in the United States, you sound optimistic that uh, you'd be able to get something done on this topic if elected to Congress. Is that right? Are you optimistic about it? Oh, yeah, extremely optimistic. And that's because I see more and more people who I interact with either in person or online, and they say the environment is a priority for me. I mean, I was canvassing in Palmdale, which is one of the larger cities in my district uh, a couple weeks back. And I was talking to a gentleman who said, uh, you know, he only spoke Spanish. And so I was speaking with him in Spanish and I asked him which of you know five key areas would he consider his biggest priority? And he had his little kids running around him. It was a birthday party. Nobody in the family spoke English. And yet he told me environment was his number one priority. And, you know, that really that that speaks volumes when you have people from different backgrounds, different communities starting to say, look, environment is what matters the most. Like my kids need a place to grow up in that's safe, uh, you know, free from free from pollution. Uh, you know, then then you really see that the messaging is getting out. And so that's why I'm optimistic. I mean, younger generations are more and more conscious of what the planet needs to be healthy. And so I, you know, we're moving, we're shifting. The people who are in power now are not going to be the people who are in power in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Speaking of the environment, one of the key items in uh, in terms of issues that you care about seems to be the protection of federal lands. Uh, the Mojave Desert is part of your district, and uh, and the Trump administration has certainly rolled back protections uh, at national monuments and potentially uh, in terms of opening up uh, certain wildlife refuges for drilling. What do you hope to accomplish in terms of federal land management if elected to Congress? We need to have a strong, clear voice speaking out to protect these these lands. They are part of our national heritage, and they've been set aside and protected for a reason. And that's because they're unique in our country and unique in the world. Uh, there is no other Mojave Desert. There is no other Bears Ears or Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And when these lands have been exploited for oil drilling or like near the Grand Canyon, uranium mining, uh, not only does it endanger the surrounding environments and people who live nearby, but it also destroys something that can never be brought back. And it is something that belongs to every single American, no matter where you were born, what circumstances you were born into, what you believe in. That is something that is it's truly open to everyone and we need to protect those spaces. And so I want to be somebody who actively champions protecting our our federal lands, our, our wild open places. And, you know, these are the things that make America truly unique and special. And we need people out there advocating for them and speaking up. I want to talk about healthcare, which seems to be a dominant topic um, over the past few years in American politics and probably will become the midterms uh, later this year. Uh, and it's also an area that seems to defy scientific thinking and logic at times, because 
uh, of how it's priced, how it's um, parceled out, and the changes that we make to it seem to defy rational scientific thinking from time to time. What's your stance on something like healthcare, and and do you feel like your background as a scientist is? Uh, how do you think that's informing your stance on healthcare? Well, uh, really good questions because healthcare seems to be, you know, just from the uh, informal surveying I've done uh, with people who are following my campaign, it is one of the top, if not the top issues on people's minds. And I think it's because it's something that it, it can be so unexpected when you're in a healthcare crisis. Uh, you know, you may have been healthy, you know, as could be the day before, and then suddenly you have a diagnosis that could jeopardize your entire future or your family's future. And you know, just talking with people in the last few days since the start of the new year, um, it has become very apparent that a lot of people are hurting right now because of medication prices going up or their health care plans changing and them not being able to access the care that they need. And I'm at the point where, you know, I've I've worked and lived in various countries and various continents. I mean, I've worked on six continents and lived in three different countries. And the United States, there is no reason that we should not be providing health care to every American citizen. People in our country need access to health care, and they need to be able to do it without risking their entire financial future. Uh, and that's the problem. We have people drowning in outrageous medical bills. I mean, we have some of the highest cost of care in, on the planet, and we don't have the best outcomes for that high cost. So we need a system. Uh, and the one that I've been backing ever since I stepped onto the political scene uh, has been Medicare for All. And that's because you know, Medicare for all Medicare right now is a system that most people who have it like it. It's much more efficient in terms of having lower overhead administrative costs uh, than traditional the, the for profit health care plans that we see in the market. And it's something that, you know, we have the ability to we can get there in terms of funding and it will save some money on overhead costs. And the government is already paying for two thirds of our health care right now. That fact blows a lot of people's minds. So we only really need to make up that one third and we can do that. There are so many different options for how we can get there uh, that if we have the political will to make it happen, we will. And then we won't have to hear about people choosing between rent and and being able to uh, put food on the table and having their medical care you know, covered. We need people who can go to the doctor and get, get healthy because without a healthy society, we are pretty much doomed for the future. We need healthy citizens. It's just fundamental. And so I'm, you know, I try to use uh, all the available research I can about care affordability and efficacy and, you know, healthcare costs versus outcomes. And when I, when I dig into it, I really am shocked by things like how poor our maternal and infant mortality rate is compared to other countries in the developed world. I mean, it's shocking. We have an appallingly bad maternal and infant, infant mortality rate, and we can do better, but we just need to really come together as a country and remember that our ideals include allowing people to pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness. And if people are sick, they can't do that. One other issue I want to talk about, and this one isn't going to surprise people, investment in R&D and in basic science. And it, it's not going to come as any shock that as a scientist, you're in favor of continued investment in it. There's numerous reports about how that pays back to the larger economy. 
Uh, but a number of conservatives have talked about wanting to slow the growth of that investment in basic science and turn more of that over to the private sector. And and in your district is the Vandenberg Air Force Base, where SpaceX does a number of its launches. And it's sort of become a poster child of turning over certain federal science programs to the private sector as a form of success. Uh, I'm curious if you can tell us about your stance towards federal investment in R&D and whether or not we should be looking at more collaboration with the private sector when it comes to basic science research. I think that, you know, encouraging people to work in scientific fields is great, um, especially because we have to face 21st century challenges um, like automation. <laughs> That's a big one. And climate change. Um, however, I will say that, you know, the government has a role to play here. And that's because a private company, no matter how altruistic it may seem or how it may have been founded uh, with, with everybody's best interests in mind, at the end of the day, a for-profit group is beholden to its shareholders. Uh, and, and so you cannot assure that what is being done is being done for the good of the country 100%. Uh, the way that you can, you know, it, theoretically, uh, you know, if you do it with government money, because the government then has more oversight and more control. So I am a fan of doing both. We need to have federal government funding research and development, particularly green tech R&D, which I want to make our district here, the global hub for green tech research and development. I think that's going to be a big um, jobs mover and shaker here for us, and it will help us deal with automation. Uh, but I also think that in addition to that, when the government does fund uh, private research and development, it does so as a supplement to what it is doing, because we don't want to outsource everything. It's not smart when you rely on the altruism of private companies, as we see with, you know, the collapse of so many of the big banks and, and things like that. You know, in no instance does a corporation ever have a conscience. We need to, to put in place protections so that we can provide that human element and make sure that we're doing what we're doing because it's the best thing for the country uh, and not just for profits. One last question about sort of the campaign details. Uh, your district has been identified as one of those districts that many Democrats are targeting as a, uh, to flip in 2018. Uh, it was a district that uh, Secretary Clinton carried by a number of points. Uh, the Republican is seen, uh, Republican incumbent seen very uh, vulnerable here. I'm curious what your take is on the fact that elections are really local endeavors, but there's probably going to be a lot of national attention that that shows up in a in a part of California that really feels small town in certain parts. Um, how is that going to affect sort of the dynamics of this election in CA25? Well, I think it's it's um, something that a lot of us here locally are are prepared for. We understand uh, we're not a very wealthy community, not like some of the other areas. Like we're no Beverly Hills, that's for sure. Um, so we know that in order to to go up against the the GOP's dark money and big corporate money, we need to have help from all around the country. And I think that's what makes me unique as a candidate is that you know I've had support from all over the country, and I constantly have to tell people who are are foreigners no you can't donate to my campaign. Uh, it's not legal. So it's the enthusiasm that I see, I think is, is part of what's going to make candidates who are running, uh, you know, to flip seats successful is if they can get that national enthusiasm and energy and channel it into local boots on the ground efforts, that's when we're going to succeed. And to me, I think that's why, you know, running a grassroots campaign is really the way to go here 
locally, even though our district is huge. I mean, it's like 70 miles from end to end or thereabouts. Uh, it's, it's pretty massive. And, you know, you have to drive quite a ways to get from one side to the other. Uh, but what unites everybody in our community is that we love this place. You know, this is a place where we're proud to call it home. And it's something that we really want to see good things for, for the next several years. And, you know, having a, having a Republican incumbent who votes against uh, the community's interests time and time again is just not, uh, it's not sustainable. So we got to change it. Last question. Even though we've seen a boom of scientists running for office, there's still just in terms of the total end, there's not very many. And more than likely, more scientists will lose running for office than than gain those seats. Uh, I'm curious if you feel that what we're seeing is a trend that's going to continue, that some more scientists are going to be encouraged to run for office or or if we need wins here for for it to really make a make that continue. You know, I let me let me share with you a little um, anecdote about something that happened just the other day. Um, you know, I'm interacting with people a lot on social media, and I received a message on Twitter from a follower who said, "I just wanted you to know, Jess, that I'm so inspired by your run for office. I am a young scientist, and I never thought that I could get active politically. I just didn't think I had it in me. But seeing you run for office." you are now showing me where I want to be in 10 years. And, you know, I appreciate it so much. And, you know, I responded to her and I just said, you know, wow, it means a lot to me that I'm having that effect on you. And, you know, you know, try hard for what you want, basically put all, put your heart and soul into it. And she wrote back and said, I have tears in my eyes. Thank you so much for responding. I didn't realize you had time to respond to me. And I mean, she's not alone. I've had so many young people contact me and say, you know what? I'm going to do this. And not just young people. I've had women in their 60s who've gone back to school for a college degree and have gotten in touch with me and said, you know what? I'm going to run for something now. And, you know, whether they're scientists or not, it's just really great to see people who never thought that they could do something getting out and doing it, whether that's knocking on doors or phone banking or, you know, engaging online and speaking up about their their views. People are doing this now. And I mean, it makes me optimistic for the scientific community and for the country as a whole. Like, I think we may have needed a pretty big shock to uh, jar us into action, but I don't think we're complacent now. And I think we've got this massive momentum on our side. And I'm really, really hopeful for next year. You know, I love science. Our, our listeners love science. It's, it's clear that you love science, too. This must have been a very hard decision uh, to take a break from science to, to run for office. But Jess Phoenix, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me, Kishore. It's been a pleasure. So Jess Phoenix, rising from the ashes. <laughs> Is that too lame a joke? A volcanologist? I, I think it's one of the greatest scientist names for a volcanologist ever uh, created. I think she was destined to become a volcanologist <laughs> with that name. Um, but, you know, I still I still wonder what the practicalities are for her or for any scientist. I mean, most scientists can't just take a few years out of their careers uh, in order to do something completely different and come back and still be at leaders in their field. So she's probably going to take a hit career wise if she you know goes and, and, and moves to Washington from the science perspective. And my question is, is that worth it for a scientist? Well, let me put out this idea. What if her career is as a legislator? Like if she wins, like that could be her career. Yeah. And she's just trained as a scientist. Right. And and I mean, yes, that that's true. And I guess I I I 
in my own head, and you know, I like that's the question of like, you know, most people go into science because they feel that you know it's it's a it's a vocation. It's, they have a drive to it, um, and that's probably true of politics as well. Um, and and so it, it seems a little bit weird to me that you can have someone who can have both drives, you know, who is both driven to the, you know, for the quest of knowledge and for politics. But I guess, ultimately, if it's about bettering humanity, the goals are the same. I'm going to say something that I, I'm still left with that I, I find odd is uh, Kishore from like three or four years ago would say, isn't it advantageous to be a lawyer going into elected <laughs> office? Because like, that's what you're you're supposed to do you're you're writing laws like having a legal background will help i feel like that's gotten thrown out the last few years there's been a lot of people that have held elected office that don't have those backgrounds um but i still like in the back of my mind i'm like isn't is there going to be such a learning curve for a scientist to go into these roles because there is just the assembling of a team and a lot of legal issues that that come up and when it comes down to it you can build a team that'll help you do that uh, but I wonder if a scientist is ready for the actual tangible needs of the position. But we won't know until they actually assume these roles. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, as a scientist, you can often hold off your final opinion until you have all the facts. And sometimes in politics, you just don't have that luxury of time. You need to make decisions without necessarily knowing all the facts. And we see how, you know, that works out all the time. Um, and, and that sometimes to get things done, you know, in Congress or in the Senate, like you have to, you have to be able to, you know, put suggestions put things out there that you know you might not have all the information for is that going to be at odds with the training that a scientist has at the end of the day we're running a story that is really about these scientists running but i, I think the real um story here is that there's new people running these are not people that would have normally run for office before that have been motivated by what's happened recently uh to assume runs for office some of them are going to be successful. A majority of them won't. Well, I guess we'll have to see. That's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. And I want to thank you for joining us today. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Trey Bean, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you so much. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiring show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Gian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.